auditing is good, but it's not it's not forensic accounting what I really wanted to do. I testified a lot and I loved it. You're listening to Robin Shaw, a certified public accountant, certified fraud examiner, and former financial analyst for a district attorney's office. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. They didn't know any internal controls or they didn't know any different. They didn't know how to protect themselves. Fraudsters are nefarious. They will forge your signature and you will never know. In this episode, we discuss how Robin joined the district attorney's office as a forensic accountant. The criminal cases she investigated as part of the prosecution team. The difficulties of opening her own forensic accounting firm and how she markets her forensic accounting services. She is a certified public accountant and a certified fraud examiner. She is also the owner of Facts and Figures Forensics in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Robin Shaw, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thank you for having me today, Robert. It's a pleasure to have you. You have a forensic accounting business. How did you choose forensic accounting as a profession in general? Well, I decided I wanted to be a forensic accountant back in college when I was in an auditing class and the certified fraud examiner talked about those various professions. And so I went into forensic accounting because of that. Did your was your professor like a, a CFA or just he had a special speaker come in? It was a special speaker. I was in uh, Gunnison, Colorado, and the speaker came over from Grand Junction for the day, and so it was really interesting. How did he sell it to you? What made you so interested in that side of things? It's it's different than auditing. It's slightly different. Well, he, he told a lot of good stories, um, and he told about forensic accountants, how they have to do a lot of detailed work, but it's really rewarding when they find that one transaction or do something that makes a difference for a client. Once you had him, you graduated, I assume, with a accounting degree, correct? I did. And then later on, CPA. So what, what made you get go from... A, an accounting graduate to getting your CPE or CPA? When I graduated from school, after doing uh, my capstone project in forensic accounting, I went into public accounting and I did some taxes and I did some auditing and I talked to some other forensic accounting professionals in the firm and they told me what I really needed to do is build up my skills, learn all I could and develop my auditing and my investigative skills. And so after that, I moved on into private industry, and then I ended up at the office of the city auditor here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And while I was here, actually, um, I attended a presentation put on by the district attorney's office. And at the end of the presentation, they mentioned how they tried to get volunteers to help them out in their staffing, and they needed volunteers in their economic crime unit. So I actually ended up going that route. I actually volunteered for two and a half years on my lunch hour while I was working at the auditor's office. So I, I definitely put in the hours. And then after that, uh, they actually offered me a job. So I left the auditor's office and went over to the district attorney's office. Why was the district attorney's office more compelling for you versus staying as an auditor? 
Well, things as an auditor, um, I maintained my CPA and my CFE, and I was doing auditing. And auditing is good, but it's not it's not forensic accounting, what I really wanted to do. And I figured out that when I was working over at the DA's office, a lot of their volunteers had just previously just spreadsheeted items, just done some basic data entry and filed things and, and whatnot. And with having a certified fraud examiner credential, I could bring a lot more to the table, and they realized that. So then I could be a forensic accountant. I could learn about the law, and I could do things to make a difference for people. What were your functions as an investigator at the DA's office? Well, I wasn't a tried-and-true investigator. They called me a forensic financial analyst. So what I did is I investigated records. I'd look through bank records, and I'd, I'd tell the investigators better ways to write their court orders for production of records, saying, like, both sides of the check. You don't need just one side. And explain why and help them that way. <laughs> the, so the front side is just not as good. You have to have the back side as well to find out where it went to. Yes. Yeah, I know. Isn't that shocking that people don't know? I need a front and the back. The back tells me where it went to. The front tells me who got it. I know. That that is so important. Gosh. I I also helped out uh, attorneys understand uh, business concepts, and I helped review loan documents and and such, track payments, trace funds, mostly the educating the attorneys on the business concepts because of being a CPA, I had that experience, and they are attorneys and they know law. They don't know, you know, business stuff. So it worked out really good. How long did you stay at the DA's office? Oh, gosh. I was at the DA's office as an employee for four and a half years. So after two and a half years volunteering, so I guess that would be almost seven years. Was this all in Colorado Springs? It was. The district attorney's office in Colorado Springs, it actually encompasses El Paso and Teller counties. So it's two counties wide. They're the biggest district attorney's office in the state land-wise, and they actually have the smallest budget. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, so it's not really a major town. It's really a, it's sort of a rural area that needed your expertise then. I mean, Colorado Springs is a city and everything, but it covered a lot of land-wise that way too. Having a small budget is why they use a lot of volunteers, and it's really key to their success. I, I'm just kind of curious, especially regarding the DA's office trying to get volunteers. That seems to be like a lot of work or, frankly, a lot of – it seems like begging. Hey, we need some help here. We need some help here. Please help me. <laughs> Please put on your public service hat and, and do this. It just surprises me. That I guess that – doesn't surprise me there's a need out there. Don't get me wrong. It just surprises me that – that they went to, it seemed to be that extreme to say, please help me on your lunch hour. Uh, it just, it just oh, it seems bizarre. Yeah, it, it wasn't really like that. They used volunteers. A lot of them were legal students or law students, so they could get a, a foot in the door, if you will, or at least have some experience of how an office like this, you know, works. So it wasn't it wasn't like they were begging for people to help them. They provided this opportunity, and they, they took advantage of it to help do tasks that attorneys could be better spent doing their law work and stuff, rather than filing things or drafting uh, documents that they redo and stuff like that. So it was education for the law students. Good. Okay. That makes more sense to me. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what credentials or training were required to get that job 
as a analyst at the DA's office? They actually created the position for me. This really big case came along, and they asked me if I could spend some more time on it. And I told them I couldn't because I had a full-time job, and I was pretty busy. So they eliminated an investigator position and created mine. And so they wrote the position around me. They wanted somebody to have a certified fraud examiner. They wanted somebody to be a certified public accountant. They wanted somebody with experience in business affairs, like doing uh, public accounting or working in the industry, such like that. What types of cases did you work? I worked a ton of different kinds of cases. Well, because it was a district attorney's office, it was criminal law. So I worked a lot of contractor fraud cases. I worked employee embezzlement cases. I worked one or two homicide cases, which was actually uh, interesting tracing the funds and stuff like that. There was a trust case that came across my desk. Uh, I didn't really see any uh, bankruptcy cases or anything like that, though. What kind of tools did you get to use when you were an analyst? What were your day-to-day tools or databases that you get to use? My day-to-day tools was the uh, PDF manipulation software, um, our scanners, and Microsoft Excel. I know there's a lot of other software out there, but we really didn't have the budget for it. That was a little frustrating on my part, but uh, I did what I could with what I had. You'll get the bank statements. How did you get it into an Excel spreadsheet format? (laughs) Oh, that was the awesome part. Let's see. The detectives would order a court order for production records, so the banks would wait 30 days and then send you the information. If they sent them to you in paper, they would need to be scanned, and then hopefully OCR, which is Optical Character Recognition, and then I could uh, import that into a data table in Excel. Sometimes they arrived in paper format, and they were really hard to scan, either the quality of the documents or uh, just the reading on it was, writing on it was horrible, or uh, they arrived electronically, but they were not able to be imported into Excel, so I did a lot of hand-entering of things. But I put checks and balances in place so I could verify and balance to the bank statements to make sure that I wasn't making mistakes that could uh, cause any problems. At the end of the day, you put it into Excel, you take a look at it. Did you have to write a report or what was the, what was the end product look lo- looking like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, as a, a member of the investigation division, I did write reports. It was kind of interesting because my reports were not like the detectives and other investigators, their reports. Because they work similar to a a police office or a sheriff's office in that whenever the detective does something, they write up a report and submit it. So they might have like 50-some reports for a case. For me, it was one report at the end of the case. And so it was kind of hard to fit into their format, but I may do and. You know, I told the story of what I did and what I found, and here's your totals. I never determined guilt or innocence because that's not what a CFE does, and that's also not what I do. At the district attorney's office, they were the triers of facts, and so we let the judges and juries decide, but I gave them all the facts and figures. Because of your expertise, 
I would assume that you would have to get on the stand sooner or later and explain to the judge and jury where the money came from and where the money went to. Would I be correct? Yep. I testified a lot. And I loved it because it was a, <laughs> it was it was a fascinating process. I, I loved taking part in it. Um, and I think it uh, evolves around uh, my original fascination with law and order. Now, all the attorneys I worked with hated that I love law and order so much <laughs> because they're like, this is not who it is. No, it's but not. I, I thought it was amazing. I get to testify and whatnot. Another thing that I really liked about testifying is I'm a petite woman, so I was underestimated a lot until they started recognizing who I was because they're like, well, who's this person on the stand? She doesn't know anything. Well, I did know some stuff. I would dare say because of your CPA and CFE background and what you're doing following the money that you were the money expert in the room. They just didn't know it. And then they found out later <laughs> on that they didn't know what they're talking about or you knew a lot more than what they thought. And based upon my experience as a criminal investigator, I realized that many attorneys, whether it's prosecution or defense, they were not the money experts in the room. There's nothing, not, nothing bad. It's just that they just don't understand what we do and how we do it. So they have to take it face value that what we know what we're doing. And uh, exactly. it's 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 yeah. not – you can be tripped up, yes, if you don't do your homework. So don't get me wrong. No one's infallible on the stand. But yeah. there should be a, a level of confidence of I created this report. I did a good job on it. And go ahead and test it and see how you think about it. And cross-examine mm-hmm. me on it. I'm happy. You know, if I make a mistake, yeah. fine. Uh, I'm there. Yeah, exactly. I had one prosecutor tell me as a witness, I'm not for the defense. I'm not for the prosecution. I'm here uh, to give you what I know. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not for or against anybody. I'm just here to be a witness, to tell the truth. That's it. And yep. uh, trust me, I, I completely understand. It's great that you had all that experience. Most People who are called themselves forensic accountants do not have hardly any trial experience. And me personally, I love trial. I love taking the baby yeah. that I created and sit there and say, this is my baby. This is my report. Let's talk about it. Because I know I know mm-hmm. where the facts led to. The facts led to the to the guilt of the, uh, the defendant. And it was easy. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Completely understand. <laughs> I like trial more than anything else. Uh, maybe I was a rare breed like you are. I I just liked it. I liked the uh, the com- oh yeah the the combat in the uh, in the in the courtroom. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so sooner or later, you transition to start your own firm. Why did you do that? Well, when I was at the district attorney's office, I saw so many cases cross my desk from small business owners that were embezzled from. They didn't know any internal controls, or they didn't know any different. They didn't know how to protect themselves. So when I left the DA's office, it was with the intention of educating business owners, getting ahead of the game to either prevent or detect it a lot sooner so they wouldn't lose their business or lose so much money. Did you find during your tenure at the DA's office that, and this is not a slam against any local officer at all, that they were just not able to do a complex investigation that you were, oh, yeah. you were really needed? Because I, I can see this way based upon my experience. 
you have a guy or a girl who goes to school, gets a degree in psychology or maybe in business administration, whatever, right? And they go get a they go to the local academy and they get a job and they become a sworn law enforcement officer. And then they're on the street for 10 years, 10 years, and they finally become a detective. And now they got to work by this financial stuff. And they haven't dealt with this in probably 20 years or 10 years. And so it's just not the skill set that they have. So to have someone like you to come in, I bet you they just love to dump that stuff and say, here, fix it, please. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I have to say, because I worked for the district attorney's office, I was, while the clock was running, so to speak, charges have already been filed. And so that was always, always a challenge, too. I did a lot of uh, work with the PD and the sheriff's office and helped talk to them. They each had financial crimes units. And all together, all of us, we did a lot of education for the new recruits coming in, the new patrolmen and stuff. So they would at least have an idea of some basic questions to ask or some basic documents to request initially before they handed it off to the specialized unit. In your opinion, let's assume someone's been embezzled against. Is it better for that company to hire someone on the front end, even though it's a little more expensive, to wrap their arms around what, what what went on and then hand it to you with a with a nice bow on it? Or is it better for them to just turn it over to the local authorities and hope and pray that they understand it, are willing to put resources into it, and then willing to prosecute it? Well, in my opinion, the first choice is the better one. Um, hire me ahead of time so you can organize it and I can find out any of the... Uh, inefficiencies that are not going to work or, or whatever, be able to put together a nice package to be able to provide law enforcement with this so they can do their additional investigation, such as interviewing all the people involved and whatnot, to take the case through in a more efficient manner. Our economic crime guys are great, but they do a lot of things. They're not just financial crimes detectives, they help out on other cases. So if there's a child in the area or a homicide where they're required to, to work, they drop what they're doing and help with the important stuff before they get back to the other important stuff of financial crime. Yeah, this is not their only case they're working on for the for the next six months. They have a exactly. lot of stuff going. Resources are tight. Yeah, there's always competing priorities about what goes on. Sometimes they have to drop things. Uh, the reason why I was asking that question is I can foresee a business owner being upset, emotionally traumatized because their favorite employees embezzled from them. And they turn it over to the local department and expect something to happen that would be a nice resolution in their opinion, mm -hmm. but yeah. not happen or not happen very quickly just because they're turning it over to one, an agency that may not have the skill set to, to figure it all out. Number two is may not have the resources to put time into it. And then also number three is may find at the end of the day they don't like the case and or they cut it in half just because of some various nuances that, were, that weren't fully developed. And it, be, mm -hmm. it can be very frustrating for a small business owner to, I guess, put all their trust into that basket and then expect something to happen. And they're made exactly. up. Exactly. A lot of business owners are frustrated with that. They they also don't understand how slow the legal system works, how long it can take to do an investigation. 
they don't understand that when you ask a bank for records, they have 35 days to return it to you. And they take 35 days. <laughs> they don't, like, turn it over right away. They also are frustrated that the detective might have other cases. They're not the only one. And so you can't just cr- call and cry on their shoulder. So you transition to your own firm. What type of investigations are you doing now? Well, it's a lot different than just criminal, I have to say. Um, I was not quite ready for that, but uh, a lot of civil investigations, mostly when it's uh, in regards to tracing funds. So it could be for a bankruptcy case, a personal injury case, a divorce case, any kind of case like that. I also do some fraud investigations, which is what I wanted to do, helping business owners navigate the waters and providing a shoulder for them to cry on and listening to them and explain to them how things are going to work and being able to provide a nice package for law enforcement. How are you marketing yourself or your services to other people? How did you get started? Oh, marketing, the bane of my existence. Um, (laughs) Mostly I use LinkedIn. I like to uh, connect with professionals and find out who's out there. I also market myself by going to the El Paso County Bar Association meetings. They have various sections for types of law, so like the bankruptcy section or the criminal law section or the estate probate section. So I go to those meetings, and although I don't really need the training, oftentimes it's interesting, plus I get to meet other attorneys, and they're fascinated that I'm not an attorney, but I'm hanging out with them. So are you speaking at these events, or are you just showing up and rubbing shoulders with them? Uh, Both. Some of the uh, sections have asked me to educate them about, you know, what's a forensic accountant do and how can they help me? So what kind of clients are you getting from attending the Bar Association meetings? Mostly those are the uh, ones from attorneys directly. So they can be the bankruptcy cases or the divorce cases or the trust case. When you started your own firm, you got to build your pipeline cases to work on. How did you transition from going from a W-2 employee from the county or the state to starting your own business? How was that like transitioning from one business to another? It was very scary. So leaving a steady paycheck to move into this. I didn't have a lot of prospects at first. I mean, I had my connections from the law enforcement community, but they are, again, are dealing with it, you know, after it comes to them. Sometimes I would get a call from somebody they might have referred to saying that you should speak to her first and whatnot. But it was really, really slow. So I worked with another forensic accountant in town. I worked with him on some cases, kind of getting my feet wet in the civil arena and understanding what it's like to run a practice and learn that way. After six months, then I kind of like set me free and Oh, I just uh, did a ton of regular networking, meeting people, just to get my name out there so people would know about me and so business owners could find me that way. And then I stumbled upon the Bar Association and then made it a a two-pronged effort, focus on the Bar Association and focus on networking to meet general people. Regarding your marketing, I did see your website and I thought it was probably one of the cleanest looking websites I have ever seen on forensic accounting. It's very distinct and it wasn't cluttered. It was probably the best one I've seen so far. Well, thank you. Is that something that you did yourself or somebody do it for you? I did everything myself. So you created all the content like it is? I did, yes. What software are you using for your website? I'm using SiteBuilder. Oh, okay. All right. 
Tell me about a case that you are most proud of or made a difference in your career. Well, actually, I have two of them. One of them is my why, and the other one was just amazing because they got me hired at the DA's office. But uh, the first one was a large contractor fraud. These father and son built barns, or said they would build barns, for people out in eastern Colorado. Essentially, they would quote a job and get the person to give them the deposit, and then they might put in a little work, but then they would move on to the next quote, collect the money, and maybe use that for the first job or something like that, or just spend it. They had quoted this job for this one woman. She was in the service industry, and she just needed a loafing shed, which is a structure for her horse. Now, the horse was in its later years, and it was sick, so she wanted to have a nice place to stay for the winter. So she met with the the son of the business early in the spring, and he told her, well, we'll charge you $1,500. So she saved up all summer long and made the deposit of $900, and they never did anything for their horse, never built the structure. $900 isn't a lot to some people, but it can be everything to some people. So I, I wanted to use my skills to be able to help people and do that. Now, the other case... Uh, so what, what I happened? Got hired at the I can't... I got to stop you right there. So what <laughs> happened to the 900... How'd you... Uh, what happened? What was the end of the story? Oh, the end of the story was uh, we got the Attorney General's office involved, too, and so we did a, a co-investigation. But I tallied, you know, of the 14 other victims that, that came forward, tallied their losses, and we I tallied what was spent on the actual sheds. Not much. We used pictures. And uh, we got the son sent to jail, and the father took a deal and, and pled out. I, I think he got probation. That's kind of what happened. And unfortunately, most of these people never got their structures built. But at least there was some type of closure where you did your job, and they're in the court system. Now, what happened to them in the court system is nothing on you. It's all about the judge and how they want to do things. But at least it was a oh yeah good closure yeah. for you on that case. It made such a difference to me because I'm an animal lover, and the story about the horse just broke my heart. No, I understand. So what was the second story? The second story um, was about a uh, a gentleman that lived in Nebraska, and he was an attorney, and he stole from his trust account. He was found guilty, tried, and all that stuff. He'd done time in jail and ordered to pay a large amount of restitution. He had a friend out here in Colorado Springs that did not know of his legal troubles. He just knew that Mr. Malcolm was down on his luck. And so he moved him out to Colorado and said, look, I've got a job. You can be a bookkeeper for a water district. <laughs> and so, I can see where this yeah, one's going. <laughs> unfortunately, yes. As soon as Mr. Malcolm arrived, he started stealing from the water districts. The funds were flowing like crazy from him to he ended up using his wife's bank account because his wife had a business bank account and his personal account, they started putting holds on the checks. He just wrote checks to himself. That was it. That was his simple fraud. So anyways, his wife's account, they wouldn't put a hold on the check. And so he would cash it and move it into his account and whatnot. But then the water districts, they were short on funds. And so then he'd have to move money back in. So in total... He got away with $3 million, uh, just over $3 million. And he actually put back in $1.2 million. <laughs> so it was really a, a messed up case. But it took me two and a half years, and it was over 30,000 pages of documents. He was actually sentenced to 18 years in the Department of Corrections. 
But unfortunately, the gentleman, Mr. Malcolm, is 68 years old. So I don't know if he'll see public life again. And it was as simple as him writing out checks either personally to himself or to his wife? He just wrote it to himself. His wife was not involved. He did a lot of stuff to cover up. Unbelievable it was that simple. And no one was looking over his shoulder. What were the auditors for this water services? No, it was a water district for two uh, communities in town. They didn't have auditors as if they had as boards of directors. But what Mr. Malcolm was doing is forging the bank statements. He didn't have one done in time and say, oh, well, I'll send it to you later. But the real tragedy is the board members might look briefly at the statement, but they didn't happen to notice the key errors, like stuff didn't add up or stuff wasn't in the same font. He was forging the documents to cover what he was doing. So he was forging the source document saying this is the bank statement when it actually was not the bank statement. He was also forging their names on checks. They had two signature lines on the check, and they figured this is an adequate internal control. And so I preached to everybody, it is not. Fraudsters are nefarious. They will forge your signature, and you will never know. You need to actually look at the bank statements and the checks that are clearing the bank. Exactly. That's like auditing 101. Don't trust a guy handing you the bank statement. Trust the bank that's handing you the bank statement. Two different things. Mm -hmm. Are there any resources or training that's helped you on your journey? The ACFE, or Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, they provide a lot of great training, and their members are very generous with their time. And it was really good to meet people on both coasts or worldwide that I could feel comfortable with reaching for the phone, calling them, and asking a question about something awesome. Because I was the only one here in El Paso County. What do you wish you had known before you started your firm? How to market. I know business. I know how to how to run a business for numbers and, and things like that. I didn't know anything about marketing. I had to learn, and it was I had to learn quickly. So what do you think you, your weakness was in marketing? How did you overcome that? I came in with the idea that, oh, well, I'll just hang up my shingle and people will come to me. I had no idea that I had to <laughs> actually get out there and meet people. It's like, it doesn't happen like that. And there's such a thing as social media. I wasn't really big into that before. Kind of just getting your name out there and, and meeting people, making them aware that you exist and what you do and how you can help them. Yeah. In forensic accounting in particular, it's all about building a relationship with the client, whether a client's attorney or a business owner, it's all about that. And you can't do it by just hanging a shingle and say, come see me. It just, it just, it just doesn't exactly. work. It's not like you go, go get a, a hamburger at McDonald's. I don't care what about the clerk and whether she likes me or not. I'm glad she says hi to me and smiles, but that's not why I'm really there. But yeah. in this type of service industry, they have to trust you because ultimately – you hold some of the keys to their case and help them navigate the waters and give them good advice for their clients. And that, there has to be a level of trust there that has to be met. Otherwise, they're not going to hire you. At least I wouldn't. You know, I, I wouldn't yeah, hire exactly. anybody that I don't, I don't trust and don't know. Uh, I, I want somebody who's who I can sit there and say, okay, they're, they're going to do this job and do it well. And by the way, they can also testify at the end of the day about all this stuff too. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Pasting your face on a billboard is not going to help with that. <laughs> no, no, you're right. It's it, it, definitely not. Looking back on your career, what was the biggest mistake or lost opportunity? 
I think it would have been uh, not understanding marketing right at the beginning because it, it led to a very slow start. You ready for the final four questions? <laughs> sure. <laughs> what is your biggest motivation now? My biggest motivation now is my husband. I see how he how hard he works in his business because he's a small business owner as well. I want to do well and be successful to help support him so he can have a good life too. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? Well, I, I really haven't been into all the, the famous books that everybody always talks about. I I like a book. Um, it's called Forensic Analytics, and it was written by Dr. Mark Negrini. He uh, is fascinated with Benford's Law, and I was fascinated, or am fascinated with Benford's Law as well. And it was a really good book to read because when I was an auditor, it gave me some ideas for better tests and how I could design them so I could focus my investigations and do a better job as an auditor. You know, I, I'm sort of there as, as myself. I always find it's like, oh, when I learned about Benford's Law, like, really? I didn't learn about that until like, oh, 15 or so years ago. And it was some, this analyst, I was helping me get some records for. He goes, yeah, I did some Benford's Law. And I was like, what is Benford's Law? He goes, oh, it's when you do this, this, mm-hmm. and this. I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, it was it had to do with false numbers on a tax return where the subject was inflating the charitable contributions. Well, we all know mm-hmm. if you're if you're given ten percent, it's suspicious. I mean, if you're if you're religious and you do that, it's fine. But the, the but the majority of people out there overwhelmingly do not give ten percent. So how do you know these numbers are, are false or fraudulent? It was just simple because Benchford's Law would sit there and say it's always, you know, the weird numbers and it never made any sense. He used Benford's Law to prove that these charitable contributions were false. And it was kind of interesting, actually. Share something that you have purchased in the last 12 months that's less than $100 that you enjoyed or made your job easier. If it's good enough for Robin, <laughs> it's good enough for the rest of the world. It's actually a software I recently became aware of. There's a lot of, uh, court calculations, you know, when determining uh, child support or spousal maintenance. And that's there's a lot of math involved, and it's pretty tedious. And I was introduced to this software called Math for Law, and it is amazing. Ah, so, I mean, everything I had done by hand, you know, I could just put some key figures in, and the software calculates everything, and it's pretty close to mine. I mean, there's surrounding errors, but Computers are a little smarter than the hand calculator here, but it it was amazing, and I'm so glad I bought it. If you had to do something else, what would you be doing? I would be working with animals. I love animals, and I know they don't often have a voice to tell us things, so I would want to be their voice. Not so into the, the veterinary care. I mean, that's medical, and I'm not into that, but helping them, like fostering them and giving animals a second chance, the ones that don't get adopted or the ones that need a better home to live in. Well, Robin, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. And best of luck to you in your forensic accounting firm. Thank you so much for your service with the uh, DA's office there in Colorado. Robert, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to share information to help people.